Proverbs in general teaches you that if you do what is right, if you walk righteously, in general, you will succeed. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open to two places this morning. Let's open to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, and 1 Kings, chapter 3. Christian, can you bring me my Bible? Someone snuck my Bible. It's right there on the corner. Thank you. I'm going to need that, so it's going to be important. So uh, as we begin a new year today, thank you so much. As we begin a new year today and we receive from the Lord's table here in uh, just a few moments uh, as a church family and we consecrate the first day of this year and the first Lord's Day of the year for the glory of God, I found it to be prayerfully beneficial for us to think about this new year and to consider our days, consider our ways, and to reorient ourselves around what it means to walk in wisdom. And so for the next three weeks, we are going to embark through a short study and overview of the book of Proverbs. Now, if you're new with us, we go verse by verse through the scripture, and we are in a series in the book of Genesis, and we'll be picking up that series, that study, in just about three weeks. But uh, as we look at Proverbs chapter 1 today... My prayer is for us to have wisdom for a new year. I find it insightful that no one is born wise. Wisdom is something that must be learned, it must be received, it must be acquired. The book of Proverbs that we're about to study is a collection of hundreds of comparisons and short pithy observations of around or about God's world and how God's world works. And the statements in the Proverbs provide perspective on a variety of topics, everything from the workplace to wealth, everything from family to friendships, everything from suffering to your speech to sin. And throughout the book of Proverbs, the reader, you and I, are encouraged to search for wisdom, to listen to wisdom, to value wisdom, and not to turn from the right or to the left in disregard of wisdom. But we'd be foolish if we thought that Proverbs is merely a book of good advice. Unbelievers who would seek to open up Proverbs and try to replicate the principles here, but doing so void of the Spirit, absent from the God who inspired them, well, they're only going to get six verses into chapter one before they have that whole plan derailed, and they're told the true secret about wisdom. As we're going to see this morning, finding wisdom is not just where you go and memorize a list of principles. You and I don't obtain wisdom by going on YouTube or on Dagobah, where, yes, information can be given, but true wisdom is found not just doing the right routine. No, as we're going to see today, it's found in a right relationship with the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, and his son, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I want to start today by making this argument that wisdom is not the rocket fuel that helps us escape the gravity of the ways of this world. 
But then like a space shuttle, we just discard wisdom and then move on to other things. No, wisdom is more like the foundation upon which everything in our life is built upon for the glory of God and for the good of others. But then the actual foundation of wisdom itself is something we're going to discover today. So for these first three weeks in 2023, we're not going to cover the whole book of Proverbs, but we're going to be unpacking these studies together, and then we'll jump back into the life of Isaac at the end of the month. But here's where we're going in our study of the Proverbs. Today, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and see the beginning of wisdom. Next week, we're going to look at the enemy of wisdom in Proverbs 9, And then in two weeks, we will have our Vision Sunday, and we'll be looking at the value of wisdom from Proverbs 2 and 3. And in these studies, it's my desire that we would lay a proper foundation and that we would draw near to God and seek Him. Seek Him for the wisdom and the direction and the discernment that we need, not only as a Christ follower, but as a growing fellowship. Now, I just want to acknowledge something for a minute. There's no magic in turning the page from 1231 to 1-1. In other words, if all we're banking on is, well, it's a new year, this will inspire because of the calendar change, that's the same way as thinking this is going to be the year. This Now it's January. I'm going to the gym starting, whoops, it's already the first. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to the gym. Or I'm going to start that fad diet. This is the year. I'm going to shed those 2.8 pounds. It's going to happen. Well, we all know the truth is by mid-January, by early February, all of those minimal resolutions are going to come and go because if that's all they're rooted on is just the calendar, well, then that's kind of hopeless. But If we're going to begin the new year saying, Father, I want this year to count for you. And so, Lord, I want to lay a foundation starting right off with wisdom. Well, then I think this is a good perspective. So this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of wisdom. If you are taking note, we're going to discover three things from the text of chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. First, we're going to see the author of Proverbs in verse 1. Then we're going to see the key to studying Proverbs in verses 2 through 6. And then we'll see the true foundation in verses 7 through 9. So let's read through the text, and then we will dive into it. Look at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that your spirit would bring illumination, that you would allow us to observe, interpret, and that you would apply this text to each heart in a very spiritual and direct way. We thank you that we have the word of the living God in our heart language, access to the scriptures. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us now and allow us 
as those on the road to Emmaus did, allow our hearts to burn within us as we converse about the things of Christ. Be glorified, we pray, in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at the first section, the author, verse 1. Verse 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, this is essentially the title of the book of Proverbs. But don't be confused. Solomon is not necessarily the writer of every single one of the Proverbs in all 31 chapters. He certainly was the one who the overwhelming majority of them originate from, but that doesn't mean he wrote every single one. Some of them have been adapted from other literature. Some people have said they took some jewels out of Egypt, some jewels out of of this nation, this place, and then reset them. Uh, There's some of that. Uh, As we'll see in a few minutes, some other men contribute their own wise sayings. So who is Solomon? Well, the text says he was the son of David, the king of Israel. We learn in Matthew chapter 1 that Solomon was the son of David and also the son of Uriah's wife. That's a little cryptic. But Uriah's wife was, of course, Bathsheba. Now, up until his reign and ever since his reign, there has never been a king who's even come close to rivaling Solomon's position of wealth and wisdom. Solomon stands alone as a glorious and exemplary king of peace and prosperity, which gives me a glimpse of what to expect when Christ rules and reigns when he returns. But Solomon's beginning, which we'll see today, and his end, which we'll see next week, couldn't be more different. He begins his kingdom barely being crowned king by his aging and ailing and dying father, David. His first act is learning about a possible insurrection that's going to just eliminate his chance at king. And so his first act is to snuff out that insurrection. These power-hungry men were trying to steal the throne away from him. And so as a youngster, he has to wipe out that insurrection. And he does it effectively. And now, faced with this impossible task of overseeing or governing God's people Israel, Solomon is now offered by God whatever he wants in a dream. I already asked you to turn there, so look with me at 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 5. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. You see what's happening here? Solomon is recounting not only God's faithfulness to his father David, but he's also recounting his father David's faithfulness to Yahweh. And he's saying, God, I know that you are great, you are gracious, you are grand, and you have blessed my father and his kingdom. And now you're allowing me to be king and you're, you're basically saying, ask what I shall give you. I wonder what you and I would say to that. If God were to come in a dream and say, ask anything and it's yours. So what does he ask for? Verse seven. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. 
And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Observe with me the great honor, the great faith, the great humility that's on display here in Solomon's life. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And verse 10 says that Solomon's request pleased God. So Solomon is asking this by faith. Now, he goes a little bit far in verse 7. He calls himself a little child. Most scholars would argue that he was not a child, that he was actually in his early 20s. Now, listen, believer, that does not give you merit or license today to go up to the 20-year-olds here at the church and call them little children, okay? You can't do that. Solomon here is having a proper perspective of himself, though. He's saying, I'm like a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to govern this people, this great innumerable nation. He sees the great task before him, and he calls the people a great people, but he also has his eyes on a great God who created and holds all things together. And so what does he turn to and ask for? He says, God, would you please give me wisdom? Would you give me an understanding mind? And would you give me discernment? Now, it pleased the Lord, and it goes on to say that God says, because you didn't ask for a long life, because you didn't ask for riches, and because you didn't ask for power or peace with your enemies, but instead you asked for an, a heart of understanding, a mind of discernment, you will get that. You'll get what you asked for, but not only will you have an unrivaled and discerning wise mind, you will also get what you didn't ask for. You will also receive incomparable riches and honor and a long life. So, awesome. That was a good request, wasn't it? Turn to chapter 4 and look with me at verse 29. Not only was Solomon's wealth vast, the preceding verses explain what his daily uh, meal and his daily reception was, but verse 29 says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 31 says, For he was wiser than all other men. And then I'm sad that they actually listed some of the men. These poor guys. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. He wrote a psalm. Wiser than He-Man. He also wrote a psalm. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Ostensibly, these men must have been known for their wisdom, for their intellect, and it's told that Solomon was wiser. Then verse 32 says, He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He was also a botanist. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He's also a biologist. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And verse 34 says, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, it tells us here that he had 3,000 Proverbs. However, in the book of Proverbs, we have just north of 500. So the book of Proverbs is only a sampling 
of the immense amount of memorable proverbs, these wise sayings that have been collected from Solomon. Now, you don't seem impressed by that, but I just want to encourage you to do an exercise later today. I just want you to think about writing a short, memorable nugget of wisdom that you can pass on to your children. And I just invite you later today after your nap. Well, you don't need a nap. You guys came to the late service. You're good. Later on today, sit down, take some time, and just try to write out 10, 10 memorable, pithy little statements about the world and about life. And no, you can't download them off Google, okay? Just try that. It's not as easy as you think. I've tried it. And so Solomon is gifted by God, granted by God, just incredible wisdom. You can uh, read about his wisdom uh, in chapters 3 and 4. So the beginning of Solomon's life was rooted in God granting him wisdom. That is the king of Israel now who wrote Proverbs. So with that in mind, turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 1, and I want to now look at the key to studying Proverbs. I want to give us three keys to studying this book because what happens is we can often approach a book of Scripture and not understand what we're looking at, and that will cause us to misinterpret things. So I want to give us three keys to help unlock the power of Proverbs. So the first one is this. We first need to know the framework. The framework. When we approach a a book of Scripture, we need to get the bird's eye view instead of getting lost in the verses. We have to get a bigger view. And so the bigger view is that there are a few different sections in the book of Proverbs. The first one is chapters 1 through 9. Chapters 1 through 9 serve as sort of a prelude. The verses we're studying this morning set the stage and the purpose of the book. And then the rest of chapters 1 through 9 are two different things. First, a father will continue to have four conversations with his son. He's going to invite his son to listen to wisdom. And wisdom will be personified, made alive as a woman. I call her Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom will then have eight dialogues back and forth, not only from herself, but also she'll be interrupted by a woman named Madam Folly. So we'll see Lady Wisdom, who raises her voice, who calls you to listen, and then Madam Folly will also yell out and invite you to listen to foolishness. We'll look at that next week in our study of Proverbs 9. So that's chapters 1 through 9. Then 10 through 29, we have the big section of the book where we think of when we think of Proverbs. That's where most of Solomon's writings are. And these Proverbs are strung out like pearl after pearl after pearl. Sometimes I read them and I wish that Solomon would have just collated them and put all of them in a topical fashion. So I wish that Solomon would have just put all the parenting advice in chapter 10, because we need that first. And then he would lump together all, all those verses about our speech, and then everything about work, everything about diet, and, uh, and everything about friendship, and then stuff about moving ancient boundary stones. And all of that would just be topically arranged. It would be so much more helpful, wouldn't it? Well, let's not forget that the average Israelite did not have a Bible on their shelf, nor did they have the app or multiple apps on their phone. So most of the people relied on memorization. When you and I open any random chapter from 10 to 29, we realize in one chapter we have a range of wisdom that we can memorize 
on a range of different topics, different themes, everything from relationships to hard work, watching what comes out of your mouth and watching what comes into your mouth. And so I think it was arranged in a beautiful way to give us a way to memorize it. So that's chapters 10 through 29. Then we have the last two chapters. Chapter 30 and 31 are additional Proverbs written by two different men. One, chapter 30 is Agur, and chapter 31 was written by Lemuel. Lemuel gives a perspective for and from kings, and then he writes this beautiful acrostic poem that every lady knows and every husband should know in Proverbs 31. It's an acrostic poem or alphabetical poem, and most people believe that it was written about the writer's mother. Now, some people believe because he writes about kings, that Lemuel is actually Solomon just using a literary tool to pretend like he's someone else, but it's actually him. And if that's the case, then Proverbs 31 was written about Bathsheba. So Proverbs opens with a father telling his son, listen to Lady Wisdom. And it ends with a son talking about his mother who has demonstrated wise living. And everything in between, we have hundreds of helpful sayings that have shaped God's people for millennia. I want to encourage us as a church family to prayerfully pick up the Proverbs every day of this new year. My grandparents modeled a great reading plan for me. They read from the law, from the gospel, from the Psalms and the Proverbs every day. And my grandfather used to say, I forget the phrase, but it was something along the lines of, son, a proverb a day keeps... I think it may have been the devil away. A proverb a day keeps the devil away or keeps sin away. I wish he was right. But uh, we began that reading plan of Proverbs 1 on January 1, Proverbs 2 on January 2. And so you just do that throughout the month. You have 31 days in the long month, so you'll cover the whole book. And in the months like February, you'll get at least 28 chapters. So I want to encourage you to adopt that as a reading plan if you don't have one. So we need to first... We need to know the framework. Secondly, we need to know the fundamentals. The first thing we need to know in the fundamentals is that the Proverbs are not promises. They are principles. You see, we need to know where Proverbs lies in Scripture. This is not historical narrative, nor is it law. It's a part of the Bible's wisdom literature or poetry. So this section of Scripture, poetry or wisdom literature, it includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, we know that the Psalms are the hymn book for God's people. All of our call to worships almost always originate from the Psalms. We sing the Psalms, we pray the Psalms, we read the Psalms. We know that the Song of Solomon, we've studied this before at the church. You can go on our website and listen to those sermons from a few years ago. It's a beautiful picture of fidelity in marriage and devotion in the marriage bed. But when we read the Proverbs, we realize these have a unique place in the canon and in the wisdom literature because the Proverbs are giving us the general rules of God's world. That means Job and Ecclesiastes are the exceptions to the rule. So here's what I mean by that. Proverbs in general teaches you that if you do what is right, if you walk righteously, in general, you will, you will succeed. But Job teaches the exception to that rule. Sometimes the righteous suffer. In like manner, Proverbs teaches, hey, if you're wicked, if you're foolish, if you're unrighteous, then judgment is coming. You will not succeed. But Ecclesiastes gives us also 
the exception to that. Sometimes the unrighteous prosper. Job seems to show us what happens above the sun, peeking behind the scenes of God's sovereign work in our suffering and in our anguish and loss. And in the opposite way, Ecclesiastes ponders what's the purpose of the meaning of life under the sun as if there is no God, if this is just all there is in this life. And so the Proverbs give us principles, not promises. I want to demonstrate that to you with two verses. You can jot these down if you want. Two examples of principle, not promise. First, Proverbs eleven sixteen. Here's what it says. It says, a gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. Now, as a principle, that's true in the world. If you, not just as a woman, but if you are gracious, what you, can you expect as you give out grace to others? You can expect back, for the most part, honor. Now, in opposition to that, if you give out violence instead of grace, what will that earn you? It's not going to earn you honor. It'll earn you riches maybe, but it will never earn you honor, okay? So that's the principle. But that's not a promise that if you're a gracious woman here, then your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law will always give you honor. Or it's certainly not a promise if you're violent, just go out and be violent and you'll suddenly get rich. That's not a promise, it's a principle. Now, here's another one, and this is a much more controversial one. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, some of you, and including me, have banked on this verse as a ironclad promise, and we've looked at maybe a rebellious, grown, unbelieving child, and we think, well, because they were raised in a Christian home, and they did hear the gospel that one time, that automatically means that he or she will become a Christian before they die. But that is not how we interpret this verse. You see, it's not a guarantee, it's a principle. What it's saying is, Whatever you train a child up in, in general, that's the lifestyle they're going to live. So whatever values, routine, tradition, or lifestyle that you implement in your family, as a general rule, that will be embodied by the child in the adult years. Again, there are exceptions to the rule. Life is too complex for formulas, so we have to read these as general principles, not promises. But we also need to know that the Proverbs are not just good advice. No, they are God's invitation to learn from previous generations. Over and over, a father says to his son, listen and learn. You and I know this as parents. Children do not come out of the womb with wisdom. They come out of the womb with folly. And with careful instruction, we can teach our children. And we, with careful instruction, can apply what we learn in the Proverbs to the heart, not merely the mind. So we need to know the framework. We need to know the fundamentals. But thirdly, we need to know the function. And to do that, we look at verse 2 through 6. So we're going to look at all these different uh, explanations of why Proverbs was written. What is the function? Let's start in verse 2. Verse 2 says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. So we begin with the word wisdom, to know wisdom. This is the, obviously the theme of the book. The word wisdom, the word wise are used 125 times because the aim of this book is to acquire and apply God's wisdom for life in this world. I love the definition Warren Wearsby gives us for wisdom. He says this, 
Quote, wisdom means being skillful and successful in one's relationships and responsibilities, observing and following the creator's principles of order in the moral universe. The word that's often used in describing those who were skillful in creating crafts and building the temple, the word that's used is wisdom. So it can mean skill. And I like that Wearsby uses that as a uh, part of his definition. But that's not the only thing he says in verse 2. He says, to know wisdom and instruction. And this isn't different than wisdom, but it's more specific. The word in the Hebrew conveys this idea of learning through discipline. Now, raise your hand if you love learning through discipline. Yeah, I didn't think so. We, we don't enjoy this sort of instruction. And yet this is the type of chastening given by a parent or given by Yahweh to his covenant people. We learn instruction through discipline. Well, then he says in verse 2, the end, to understand words of insight. We know this. It's not enough just to hear them, to repeat what mom and dad said, even to repeat what Scripture says. We have to grasp it. We have to truly understand what is being said. When my son was five, he was in that moment where we had to say, do you understand what dad is asking you or telling you to do? Do you understand, son? Now he's 19, and we've hopefully moved a little further on. Do you understand? That is why the Proverbs were written, to help us understand words of insight. Then verse 3, we go deeper. To receive instruction in wise dealing. This helps us to discern between what is good and what is evil. And then he says in three ways, in righteousness, justice, and equity. We put these three together, and these attributes encompass our dealings with both God and with man. We work before God in righteousness. We work before men and women in justice. We work together with equity. Well, then we have two different types of people in verse 4. He says, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So note with me these two types of hearers. First, the simple. The simple is the one who is easily persuaded by good or evil. One person said the simple man is the one who has such an open mind that it's dangerous for him. He's just open to anything. Oh, it sounds like a good idea. Oh, that's a new doctrine. I've never heard that before. Oh, what's this philosophy? Oh, let me learn this religion. So open that you're easily persuaded. The scripture calls that person simple. But then there's the youth. The youth are not just youngsters or children, but arguably those who have not yet learned something. And, and so they're young in the faith. They're young in their doctrinal understanding. They're young in wisdom. They just need to learn it. They don't know the principle yet. Once they learn it, they know it. And so notice what each one needs in verse 4. The simple need prudence. That means cautiousness. They need to understand how to discern between what is good and what is evil, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And the youth need to learn both knowledge and discretion, meaning they need to learn the principle, the doctrine, but they also need to learn the application, how to apply it, how to live it out. Many people who learn new doctrine are often called stage cage. Have you ever heard of that? Stage cage. What does that mean? It means that they are so zealous for what they've just learned. They're so excited about it that they're dangerous. They need to be locked up and locked away because they're caustic. They're just going around beating everyone with their new truth. And so the idea here is that those who are learning need to join that learning with discretion. But then verse 5 tells us 
That's not the only people that the Proverbs are for. There's also for two more people. It says in verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Those who already have wisdom can even grow more in their learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. That means you may be here and you're a seasoned saint, a mature believer. You've already applied a lifetime of wisdom, but we can still obtain guidance, meaning practical application for a decision that's in our life right now. I don't know how many times I've gone to the Word of God saying, God, give me wisdom for a decision. And in the Proverbs, there is a clear and, and, uh, clear and uh, present answer for guidance. And so it's not just for the unlearned. It's also for those who are wise. But wisdom is not just empty precepts. You see, there's a needed foundation that all of this is built upon. And that's verse 7. Look at this final section, the foundation of Proverbs. Verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. In two weeks, we'll see the grace that is wisdom, the value that God has given us in understanding and in instruction. But verse 7, maybe you've heard it in the way that Proverbs 9.10 puts it. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When we talk about wisdom, the foundation, the very beginning, the thing from which wisdom springs out of and springs from is the fear of the Lord. Now, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, first of all, it's absent from our culture, right? It's missing in the world today. So it shouldn't shock us that that's something we don't hear on the news. We don't hear on NBC Today Show, good morning, we want to tell you about the fear of the Lord in Washington today. We don't hear about that. It's absent it's becoming more and more absent from the modern church to our shame. The fear of the Lord. Now, that can be hard to define. Does this mean we're terrified of God? In a sense, maybe. Does this mean that God is all-powerful, that he's just, that he's a God of wrath and vengeance, and we should approach him carefully? Maybe we should even put a sign that says, beware of God, maybe. We should have a healthy reverence and awe at the God who created us. Yes, there is that. But I like what Proverbs say in a cumulative way. So what I did this week is I took every reference to the fear of the Lord and basically put it into a sentence. So here's what the entire book of Proverbs say about the fear of the Lord. This is going to be too long for you to jot down, but we'll put it on our website and on social media so you can uh, record this and keep this in front of you. But here's the fear of the Lord. According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is choosing to not be wise in your own eyes, but turning from and hating evil, walking in uprightness and being instructed in wisdom. Now, if that's what we do, then it goes on, Proverbs goes on to say that this will result in providing strong confidence and a refuge for our families It'll produce a fountain of life and satisfaction that protects from deadly snares. It brings benefits even when one is poor. It buffets you and I as believers against envy by rewarding us with riches and honor. 
It prolongs one's life, and it calls others to bring one praise. So when I say the fear of the Lord, I mean less terror and more reverence. I like how one theologian put this, and I can't shake this definition. They said, fearing God is not as much being concerned that God will hurt you. It's more being concerned that you will hurt him. In other words, yes, God is sovereign. God is powerful. And there is that, that reverence and that awe and that fear. But the fear of the Lord is, I don't want to grieve him. So I want to live in a way that brings him pleasure, that brings him glory, and not that brings him grief. Yesterday, I woke up on the last day of the year, and it just struck me when I woke up yesterday, the reality of my sinfulness and how my life can often grieve the Spirit of God. I just thought back over the year, and the Spirit was just reminding me how often I can be prone to wander, how easily I can be led astray, how cold and unaffected my heart can be towards the goodness and the, the grace and the gospel of God. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, just being, just being shown the reality, the, the blackness of your heart and your sin. And I just found myself yesterday just falling upon the mercy of God and opening the scriptures and seeing God's justice and, and his power, but also his love and his wisdom displayed in the wrath of God and his wrath upon his son on the cross. And then just thinking about the cross and his tender mercy for me and his glory and my, my good at the cross and just this joyous and undeserved moment, realizing I'm, I'm unworthy and yet he is so worthy to receive my allegiance and my obedience and my faith and my very life. And so just ending the year with confession and with a renewed awe of God's mercy. I don't deserve it, but thank you, Lord. You've come to such a great sinner, and yet you're such a great Savior. And so that was my experience. I don't know if that's happened to you, but that struck me really heavy. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You may be the most educated man or woman in this room or in this world, but if the fear of God is absent, the scriptures don't call you wise, they call you a fool. Spurgeon said, there are fools in colleges and fools in cottages. You see, as one person put it, quote, the goal of wisdom is that you might achieve a life of beauty and significance so that at the end of your days, you will have accomplished something worthwhile and lasting. Jesus is the one who exemplifies wisdom as he lived on earth with perfect skill. It is through Christ that we are made wise and gain the ability to live wisely, end quote. You see, the word that's used for Lord here, the fear of the Lord is unequivocally in Proverbs, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Thus, to fear the Lord means to humble oneself before Yahweh. Or as Derek Kidner says, to, quote, have a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant, end quote. Thus, this morning, if you want wisdom for this year, wisdom for your family, wisdom for a decision, wisdom for life, if you want to be wise and discerning, you cannot do so divorced from bowing the knee of faith to our holy, sovereign, and gracious God. Amen. You can achieve everything in this world academically, or you can become wildly successful financially, but in the end, those two do not equate with true wisdom. G. Campbell Morgan said this, quote, the fundamental fact then 
is that in all knowledge, all understanding of life, all interpretation thereof, the fear of the Lord is the principal thing, the chief part, the central light, apart from which the mind of man gropes in darkness and misses the way. You see, as we come to the communion table in just a few moments, we realize that in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman desired the fruit. Remember, it, it looked good to eat. It was pleasing to the eye. And the scripture says it was desirable to make one wise. But see, Adam and Eve sought this wisdom apart from reverence for God and his word. So they wanted what ultimately was not found in the first principle of fearing the Lord. And so the scriptures tell us the fool says in his heart, there's no God. Fools love their sin. They return to their sin like a dog returns to its vomit. The fool rejects God, rejects his counsel, reviles his law to their own destruction and shame. As we'll see next week, Madam Folly raises her voice loudly and defiantly. But Lady Wisdom, a glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, reveals wisdom was here much longer than before the world even existed. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 2.3, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if we want to draw wisdom, if we want to grow in wisdom, grow wise, we draw near to Jesus. You see, the early church read Proverbs. The early church, the first century church, they read Proverbs realizing that this was about Christ. That, that if we wanted wisdom, we don't just turn to the word of the Lord. We also turn to the Lord of the word. We turn to the word made flesh. We look to Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord, to Christ who is our wisdom, righteousness, and redemption. We look at his cross and we see the cross and the world looks at that, the Greek looks at that and says, that is foolishness. And yet the cross is where true wisdom is begotten. And so when we come to this table this morning, his table, we're invited to come. This is a table of fellowship. This is a table where sinners and fools are given a seat. You and I are invited to come and to eat and to drink, to renounce our love of worldly wisdom, and to once again abide in him and with him. What a glorious invitation this is to come and to receive from his finished work. In just a moment, we're going to have our worship team come. We're going to close in a song of dedication. And then our ushers are going to come during the song and distribute the elements in just a minute. But before we do so, I'm just going to close my Bible for a minute. I just want to, for one last moment, exhort the men in our church, the men this morning, our fathers. I believe that men are called to be the high priest of our homes. What does that mean? That means that we are, in a sense, the gatekeeper. We are the watchmen on the wall. We're the ones through whom doctrine and example and the gospel flow through to our children, to our wives and our children. We are to wash our wives in the water of the word. We're to embody the gospel, embody the scriptures, and set an example that's worthy of following. We are not perfect. We're quick to confess that to our children and to our wives. And we are to lead our homes with humility and with grace. 
And so I want to challenge each one of our men today as I'm challenging myself, as a husband, as a father, as a single, I want to challenge you this morning to set an example for you, for your family, for our fellowship of reverent awe and humility before the Lord. The writer of Hebrews has a word for us. He would exhort us in this way. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So there's a sense of gratitude this morning where we rejoice in the kingdom that we've been brought into. And then he says, then thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Men, that's my prayer for you, for us, that we would lay a great foundation this year of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, that we would see our God who is an all-consuming fire, As we stand before him, as Moses did before the burning bush, we realize he is holy, he is set apart, he is mighty, and he is awesome. And we dare not enter his presence in our hubris and in our vanity and in our pride. We come with reverence and with awe and with gratitude for what he's done in Christ. And that is the foundation of wisdom. May we set that example, men, ladies, may we set that example, families, Singles, may we as Christians, as members of Christ's church, may we set that example this year. May we have the fear of the Lord in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Our ushers are going to come. In just a moment, we're going to receive these two cups out of the tray that are passed around. And I just want to invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, to take those cups out, hold on to them, and I'll lead us in a time of communion. If you're not a Christ follower, meaning you have not repented of your sin, renounced your rebellion, and turned in faith to Christ, we just ask you to abstain. Just let the tray pass by you. But don't let the grace of God pass by you this morning. If you've not yet trusted Christ, we exhort you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God sent his son to die in your place, to take the penalty that you deserve. Jesus is our substitute, our gracious gift. This morning, receive him by faith. Bow your heads with me and we'll pray and then receive the elements. Father in heaven, thank you for the work of the gospel that you have given us through your son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making us alive, for applying the truth, reminding us of what Christ taught us. Lord, we thank you that we can come to the table this morning with joy, with sobriety, and we can do so with one body, with one people. We ask, Lord, that you would consecrate this time for your glory. We thank you for your shed blood that speaks a better word on our behalf. We pray this and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.